KYW Original Podcasts. This is a Flashpoint Extra. I'm Flashpoint host, Cherry Gregg. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at donors1.org. March 31st is International Transgender Day of Visibility, a day where we highlight stories of transgender citizens around the world. And for this Flashpoint Extra, I spoke with a black transgender woman who transformed victimization into victory at a time when hate against trans women of color is at a crisis levels. Take a listen to my chat with Kendall Stevens. Kendall, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on pushing for justice. Before we go into your story, I just want to ask you what, I mean, you were not just resilient, but persistent and determined. Where do you get that from? That comes from years of abuse, of being uh, mistreated, from uh, being ostracized, from being told that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't worthy enough, that I wasn't considered a human being at all. Um, I was told that so many times. And what started to happen was emotional calluses started to, to form that helped me become very resilient. So nothing that anyone can really tell me today is something that I haven't heard before. I know that what people are saying to me is coming from a place of pain and, and hurt and trauma. And I'm very trauma-informed. And I understand that most of the time, if someone doesn't like me, doesn't choose to understand me, doesn't want to get to know me in any kind of way, is usually because of personal pain and issues that they're going through. It's not me. I don't own the problem. And I'm very sensitive to that. Yeah. And so let's back up. You are a Black trans woman. I first heard about you when um, there was an attack in your own home back in September of 20. August of 2020. Right. Tell us, first of all, and I hate that I learned about you through that um, tragic incident. What happened? It was the first day of Temple University. I had matriculated uh, to Temple from CCP after an extremely successful academic journey there, becoming their first trans commencement speaker and winning $35,000 in scholarships and, you know, winning the Dean's Award and really just taking CCP by storm, creating very uh, progressive LGBTQ um, initiatives there. So I was ready to repeat that success at Temple. I was uber excited my first day and I'm studying and I'm all riled up for, for my course. And I hear a ruckus outside, a lot of screaming and yelling and cursing. And I got very concerned because I was upstairs in my room and my godchildren were downstairs. So I didn't want any projectiles being thrown into the window or anything of that nature, or just them having to experience the violence that was playing out outside. So I went downstairs to investigate. And, you know, when I did, um, someone made some derogatory remarks to my 12-year-old goddaughter. It, it scared her. I decided at that point to call 911. I made that announcement. A random woman that I'd never seen before a day in my life started to engage with me in a very negative way, um, called me all sorts of derogatory names. She got closer and closer to me. And as she did, you know, I let her know I was calling 911. Next thing I know, I'm getting hit in my face. At that point, that's when they just came in. They just, they just came inside the home. Whatever anger they had outside between each other was directed squarely towards me at that point. And it was very frightening. 
to say the least. And um, what were your injuries? Um, my nose was broken in two places. Um, I had bruised ribs, really bad. It was hard to breathe. Two of my teeth, including my front tooth, became necrotic, cut in my gums. I had cut in my, in my head. Um, I was bleeding from my mouth, bleeding from my nose. My, my face was swollen. It was really absolutely terrifying and, and traumatizing. And I was in a state of shock. I also experienced several concussions throughout all of this. So I was in and out of consciousness throughout the beating. Just a harrowing experience. Was this your first time ever being attacked in such a vicious way? Not at all. Not at all. Not, not even the 10th time. This is routine for many trans people, especially trans uh, women of color, where we have to navigate unsafe spaces because typically we're stratified at or below the poverty line. And we're in um, environments that are down, downtrodden and um, experiencing all sorts of systemic oppressive pressure that causes people to um, act out on the person who's a bit more marginalized than they are. That's part of the problem. Whenever we leave outside of our doors, there's a strong potentiality that we're going to be harassed and bullied and um, assaulted and sometimes killed. But yet you seem to, you know, this happened to you. Is this the first time that you ever pressed for justice in a case? This is not the first time I pressed for justice in a case. This is the first time that I've been as vocal about it. And to me, the turning point wasn't even so much my attack, but the, uh, the attack and murder of a transgender um, friend and sister, uh, Dominique Remy Fells, who uh, was attacked violently and was dismembered and thrown into the Schuylkill River like trash. And she was someone that I knew, someone that um, I, I counseled to, someone that was placed on a similar trajectory of risk as I was. I, I definitely related to her. She was a strong, vibrant person that had dreams and aspirations and was dealing with some personal struggles, but was seeing her way out of it. She had a long life ahead of her that was snuffed out by the hands of hate. And that inspired me to help raise $25,000 to find the suspect um, of interest in her murder. And they did find this person. They found him in California. He is um, being brought to justice. That was the impetus that made me siren the call for action, so to speak. Did it flip a switch in your mind, in your spirit? It, it hit close to home. I'm used to navigating unsafe spaces. I'm used to having to deal with someone attacking me and targeting me uh, for violent intent. I'm used to it. It was something that I accepted because I didn't think another world was possible. I didn't think another reality was possible. You know, I completely subsumed uh, a reality that would be mired in pain and anguish and, and hurt for my communities. But when it happened to Remy, I couldn't take it anymore. I was tired of going to funerals. I was tired of going to memorials. I was tired of going to vigils. I just got tired of it. When it happened to me, that was the last straw. I said, not again, not again. I said to myself, if I'm going to be a martyr, I'm going to be a martyr for a cause that I am actively fighting every day. I'm, I'm not going to die on my back. I'm gonna die, if I do die, planted firmly on the ground, fighting the good fight. And you actually hit the streets and got to work. I sure did. I yeah. sure did. And I, what did you do to try to find this, this killer? Every Friday, I will go out and I will go to Kinko's and I would uh, print out um, the, the wanted posters that I uh, 
a receipt from the Citizens Crime Commission. They were an organization that I worked in tandem with mm. um, to send out uh, the help wanted information to different municipalities, you know, so we can find this person. We knew some of the hot spots that he frequented and we just make sure that, you know, everyone knew mm-hmm. that we were looking for him. Every Friday I would go and I would go into the neighborhoods that he was known to frequent and I would uh, post up those uh, wanted signs. I didn't care what the weather conditions were. It didn't matter to me how, if I was sick and oftentimes I, I, I wasn't feeling good. I obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic, a pandemic. So there was that element too. Um, but I had to fight for my sister. I had to fight for my community because me fighting for her was fighting for my community it was fighting for me as well. Yeah. I was gaining strength. Uh, I was gaining empowerment from being able to help my sister um, in, in, in death as I did in life. And so, and then it worked. It did. It did. He was found. And it was such a relief because this was the first time ever in history that you had someone who was a trans woman of color raising funds to that degree for another trans woman of color. And it felt so powerful that I was able to do that. I was able to accomplish that because I live under the poverty line. I'm not rich at all. You know, I, I live in a neighborhood that that is stratified social economically below the poverty line. That's the my, my reality. I'm I'm on I'm on welfare. I have food stamps. You know, so to to be able to raise that kind of money was very powerful yeah. and unprecedented. And it made me feel as if I could do anything when it came to my community in a form of advocacy. Yeah, the limit. It took courage to go out there in the middle of a pandemic and to be visible in that way and to um, raise that kind of money. Um, You know, why do you think people were willing to give? I think that people were shocked into action. Yeah. It's all about framing when you want to reach people who are different than you are. There was something about the savagery involved in Remy's murder and then follow that up with people bursting into someone's home, which every American can, can honestly agree that that is just sacred space. That is something that we don't violate. It hit close to home because I believe people finally said, well, if it's getting to the point where people are running into someone's home to attack them, a mob of people at that in front of children, throwing liquor all around the home and scaring the children and traumatizing them half to death and beating a a woman in front of these children just because she's a transgender woman. There's a big problem here. There's a big problem. It's just, it's a societal issue that I have to take notice to. That was the switch that I think turned on in many people's minds. Because you had it on tape. That's the other part. It was on video. You had a a camera outside on the front of your house. And that showed these people. And they actually caught the folk, at least some of the people who attacked you. Yeah, they they, they found one of them. They found one of them. Uh, Thank God. She was the um, uh, initial aggressor. Uh, She was someone that threatened me um, after the fact and said that she was going to come back and finish the job. I took that to mean that she was going to murder me or have someone do uh, uh, commit a crime against me. I was uh, extremely concerned. I was considering not even calling the police. I didn't call the police right away. 
at all. Because often when someone who is trans calls the police, we don't get the LGBTQ friendly police. Very often we get the apathetic, insensitive, indifferent uh, police that uh, invalidate us throughout the process of you know, us telling um, our stories and, and uh, reporting uh, crimes. This is what we, we have to go through. So often we have to ask ourselves, is it worth us calling the police in this matter? And I, and of course, you know, I, I live in a no snitch um, environment where, you know, if I go and call the police, nothing is done. Now I am put at a higher degree of risk. So I'm weighing a lot of options here as I'm bleeding out and traumatized and in shock and trying to uh, tend to my, my goddaughters who were also in the same state I was in as far as the emotional, psychological state, you know, so. What made you say, I'm going to, this, you know what, this is, I'm not going to stand for this. Absolutely not. It was my godchildren. It was a comment that was made by the woman about returning to finish the job and knowing that I live with children. I may not have done it if it was just me in the house. I could not allow any potentiality whatsoever for my God children to be put at any sort of additional risk. Mm. Couldn't do it. Children, talk about children here. You know, um, it's, it's bad enough we have children dying in the street, being killed by stray bullets and, you know, um, becoming victims of crime, you know, but when it's in your own home, you know, it just, it's something about that that just connected with me differently than any other incident of violence that ever entered my life. You, you had the video, which was right. really strong evidence. Um, and they caught the person charged. She's now charged with ethnic intimidation. And, and so that is a win for you. I mean, you've had major wins this year, yes. but I want to back it up because you touched upon some things. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, trans women mm-hmm. are not gender nonconforming people generally mm-hmm. do not report the attacks that they get. You said you've been attacked more than 10 times. Right. Um, I've talked to other trans women of color. They told me similar incidents. Mm-hmm. Why do you think so many people don't report? And you kind of touched on it. And how prolific do you think this type of crime is against um, trans women? The police department and, and many all over the country, um, things have not been kind to the transgender community or sensitive or informed of the transgender experience. And often when we are victims of crime or accused of a crime, uh, we are often treated very poorly by law enforcement. Um, As I said before, we seldom get the LGBTQ friendly officers to respond to our 911 calls. We often get misgendered, we get treated as if we're second class citizens. And the apathy that we experience um, by them is palpable. And that's traumatizing in and of itself. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's not every officer, but enough that the trust the trans community has toward law enforcement is completely broken. You know, and because of that, there's a significant portion of trans population who have no interest whatsoever in engaging with law enforcement in any way whatsoever. Just as it is, they just won't do it. Because the pain has run so deep that the, the trust is just, they don't want to re- reestablish any trust. They don't want to create trust. They do have, you know, LGBTQ, um, you know, liaisons with the police. They have changed some rules about how you um, gender uh, identify individuals uh, 
you know, gender, how you're supposed to do it. Um, I've covered those, those um, policy changes. And now you step forward and are working with the district attorney's office in some ways. Why did you decide to do that? Just because historically and, and fundamentally, the interactions that the trans community has had with both the district attorney's office as well as the Philadelphia Police Department have been less than ideal. And those interactions have only served to be victimized and, and re-traumatize us. And that had a lot to do as far as our interactions with the DA's office, had more to do with the nature of how the DA's office receives its criminal cases, which is directly from the police department. So when you have a police department that is very transphobic, by and large, then you, you see these attitudes follow onto your case. It's like, it's like a monkey on, on, on the back of your case. It just follows. I think I came to a realization that the DA's office isn't going anywhere. The police department isn't going anywhere. These are permanent fixtures in our community, whether we like it or not. So to me, I said, you know, it's imperative that we start the healing process by engaging in healthy and positive dialogue. Um, in safe spaces with those working within these systems that have contributed to and exacerbated our collective suffering. So that's, that was my uh, frame of mind, you know, so we're applying pressure from the outside, you know, we, we protest and, you know, we uh, make noise that we hope is heard. And, and sometimes you experience little to no results, but the hope is that by applying the outside pressure combined with the internal pressure to implode some of these uh, prejudicial elements within the system that will be able to um, affect real change. You, you seem like you should be highly employed or employable. Can you talk about some of the issues that trans women, trans people, gender nonconforming people face in the workplace? Well, in the workplace, um, we're experiencing um, a lot of employment discrimination based on the fact that people are able to discriminate at will. This is an at will state that we live in. Yeah. You can get fired for almost any reason. And sometimes it's not certain that it's there. It's not sometimes not certain that the reason why we're getting fired or not getting a job is because we are trans, but sometimes we just know it. We can't prove it, but we know it. And a lot of times bias is implicit to such a degree that it becomes very hard to prove if the reasoning that we're not getting a job or the reason that we're getting fired has to do with us being trans, our, our gender expression. And, and that's causing and fueling and emboldening people to disrespect, dishonor, mm. and discredit us. And, and I know that I can have all the credentials in the world. And if someone is transphobic in that interviewing process, that could be the reasoning of why I'm not getting that job. I saw that wonderful story that was done on Vice uh, about your journey uh, to getting justice for yourself and for your friend, uh, Remy. So kudos to you on that. It was a very powerful piece. March 31st is International Transgender Day of Visibility. It's very different from the Day of Remembrance. Could you explain the difference? It's much different because um, when we're talking about the Transgender Day of Remembrance, we're honoring those that have fallen victim to anti-trans violence. And I decided this year, uh, well, last year rather, to add um, those who have committed suicide, because often that suicide is related to 
societal discrimination and pressure that has compelled someone to take their own life. And unfortunately, you know, the transgender experience is just currently mired in two different and harmful narratives. You have one, like this doom and gloom narrative, you know, in which the population, they have this perception that our experience is, is only that of being victims, victims of crime and murder and violence. And then you have this other narrative, which is, is very interesting. It's called transmassage noir. It's a phenomenon, a social phenomenon that um, is the intersecting of uh, sexism and racism to such a degree that it, it fuels transphobia and is creating deep divide between cisgender and transgender populations, especially in the Black community, where matters of sexual identity and gender expression are considered to be uh, very rigid, heteronormative, and, and, and binary-based ideologies. So when we're talking about the transgender day of visibility, we honor those who are still here, giving people their flowers while they're still here for being so brave and bold and unapologetic in their visibility. Because when you are visible, you know the danger. You know what you're putting at risk. You know that you are potentially going to become a statistic. You know that your life is going to become shortened because of it. You know all of this. And you decide to choose you because living in an inauthentic way as it relates to your gender expression, that's a prison. That's not freedom. And you are free when you're able to walk in an honest manifestation of your truth every day, knowing the consequences, because you can look yourself in the mirror and you see truth looking back. You see honesty looking back. You see bravery looking back. You see pride looking right back at you. And that's how you're able to sleep at night. That takes so much courage, Kendall. I commend you on your courage and your bravery and doing that. And I have to point out just my perception. It seems like to me, you were pushed because of not just of you, but of others. It was your God children and the, the murder of your friend Remy that forced you to be so visible. Yeah, it was. And, and I think what happened is as I started to go along this advocacy journey and trying to seek out justice for my community in all key areas of our lives, that's when I began to see the inequities. The fact that, you know, I was a victim of a hate crime. However, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania rather, does not have a hate crime statute that considers transgender people as a protected class. And that had a lot to do with the fact that traditionally, uh, people have not humanized transgender people in their experiences, and which is vital for us to be recognized as people deserving of protection. And that was a problem for me. Yeah. That was a problem that people have an unwillingness or inability to consider us as human beings, human yeah. beings that has the right to just live their lives free and unencumbered by someone else's societal perception of who we should be and, and how we should behave. It's wrong. It is infringing someone, um, infringing upon someone's freedom to live life fully in their truth. It was just very horrible. 
to experience that, you know, and the epidemic of anti-trans violence will only worsen um, and the disproportionate disparities for certain um, that transgender folk um, are experiencing will deepen um, unless we're able to come together as a community, cross-pollinate with uh, communities that we normally would not attach ourselves with or, or uh, ingratiate ourselves in to start the healing process. We have to heal. And there's a lot of misinformation, false narratives that um, are creating these barriers. Yeah. Um, and people aren't talking to each other as to why they don't like, understand each other. And you cannot heal when you are unable or unwilling to reveal. Love is the only force that is going to snuff out the hate, but it has to start within us. One of the things you said, Kendall, was that, you know, you feel like sometimes the visibility can bring bad things with it. Are you nervous about this visibility, this advocacy that you're doing, you being highly visible in this way? I am worried about it, um, but someone has to do it. I think about Martin uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. Martin Luther King was out there. He knew the sacrifice that he was putting him and and his family through, but the greater good is what mattered. You know, there was always the possibility of of death, of harm. And that is a possibility for me. And And I take on that risk because I want the generation behind me who feels as if they are trans and going through their gender journeys to not have to live in hostile, violent environments that I was subjected to because my life has been a horror because of people's need to devalue me, discredit me and place me and keep me on a trajectory of risk. And if I can save someone from, from dealing with what I had to deal with, then I will. You know, I tell people all the time that I haven't had a dream in about two and a half to three years because I take medication to stop me from dreaming because I was having living nightmares of the trauma that I had endured playing out in my dream. So it wasn't just me living my life day to day dealing with it in the world. Now I had to bring it back to, to my bed. And so I never had peace of mind. I never got a moment's peace. And often we don't get a moment's peace. And I said, no more, no more, no more. We have trans children committing suicide. You have people who are bullying these trans children. You have lawmakers who feel like it's their responsibility to manage their lives to tell their parents what they can and can't do. It's becoming a cauldron of intolerance that is really painting a picture that we don't matter, that our existences are irrelevant, that our existences don't mean a damn thing. But you are proving that that is not true. I am proving it. I will continue to prove that we are human beings. And I'm hoping that Connecting people to that will be the framework that is needed for us to get over these barriers. You don't have to like me to do it. You do not. That's not a prerequisite. It's not a requirement for us to work together. You liking me. You don't have to invite me to Sunday dinner. 
but I deserve respect. And civility is the bare minimum that we should afford each other always. And with that, Kendall Stevens, <laughs> thank you for this time. Um, thank you for sharing your time with me, your energy, and, um, and for being a force. Thank you. This has been a Flashpoint Extra. Flashpoint is KYW News Radio's weekly public affairs show. It airs on 1060 a.m. every Saturday night at 930 and every Sunday morning at 830. You can subscribe to the podcast by logging on to the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. You can also find us on the web at kywnewsradio.com slash Flashpoint. Uh, my thank you to Seth Williams for doing this exclusive interview with me and for being so vulnerable. Y'all, check it out. Share it. Until next time, I'm Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. Thanks for listening.